G'day everyone, how are you going? Welcome back to uh, another podcast in the Human and Social Services series that we've been doing over the last couple of months. Uh, today we have uh, a great special guest with us uh, talking all things customer. And as usual, I have my partner in crime, Mike Capus, with me. Mike, how are you going? Good, how are you, Martin? Nice to be back. Excellent. Hopefully you had a great uh, long weekend and a break last week. Dan, I'm going to introduce you. Uh, I've got Dan Resnick uh, today. Dan is a senior manager within our customer uh, and strategy team. And uh, Dan focuses in particular around the public sector uh, and the broad, broader public sector entities. Um, and he's going to have a discussion to, today with us about, you know, how human and social services organisations uh, can keep on this trend that we've seen over the last number of years around customer centricity and providing services uh, that actually meet the needs of their clients. So, Dan, welcome. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Mike. I'm very uh, happy to be here and looking forward to having the conversation today. Excellent, Dan. Now, can you just, before we get get into the discussion, just give us a brief overview of the customer team and some of your background for the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to. Uh, so, as Martin mentioned, uh, I work on the customer strategy team at KPMG. Uh, I recently rejoined the firm, uh, and I've been doing customer strategy for effectively the last 15 years working with a range of public, private, and not-for-profit sector organizations. And we're really focused on helping our clients think about their business in the eyes of the customer. Um, and as you can imagine, you know, historically, most of the clients who we'd work with uh, focus on what products are we selling, on what services are we delivering, on how are we operating, on how are we deploying capital efficiently. We work with them to flip that perspective on their head and start with the view of who is my end user, who is the person who I want to love my organization and keep coming back to us over and over, what are the things that they really care about, and how do we design our business to specifically speak to what matters most to them and then build our product, services, and operating model around that. Excellent, Dan. We are thrilled to have you back. Uh, you've been back for a little while now, and I know you are forging ahead and getting very, very busy. As we've seen and we've discussed previously in uh, some of these podcasts and also other ones that Michael and I have done around other topics, the pandemic has obviously thrown uh, a lot of things on its head. You know, how we work, where we work, when we work, um, how we think about service delivery, who we deliver services to. Uh, and we have seen over maybe the last five years, certainly over the last five years, uh, this movement for uh, social service organisations to think about the programs and services they deliver, as you said there, from the end user. How is it for them? How do we attract them in? Because typically, you know, um, you turn up to a service that you get allocated to, but that's starting to change. How do we treat them? what do we deliver and how do we deliver it to them? And I was wondering whether um, you had a, gr a great example of what an innovative service might look like within the human and social services sector. Yeah, I think there are a ton of examples out there. And Martin, to your point, the pandemic has really accelerated the way that we're seeing organizations in the human and social services space think about not just what their services are, but how they deliver them to the end user. 
you know, one example that's an organization I find really interesting who have put the end user first is a network called the Orange Door. The Orange Door is an Australian-based network that helps individuals who are victims of domestic abuse access uh, a broad range of organizations that provide a range of support services. You know, they offered access to services in person, over the phone, and increasingly, their members are making themselves available digitally. And they've crafted their digital footprint in a way that makes it easy for the end user to engage. And by that, I mean, the end user to this type of service is frequently someone who's going through an extremely stressful and difficult period in their life. And in many cases, they're nervous about using a network like Orange Door. And so what's really cool about what the Orange Door has done is when you go to their website, before you even get into the standard content that you'd expect to see on the services that their partners can offer and how to engage with them, the first thing you actually see is a pop-up that tells you you're in a safe place and it gives you instructions. So how do I clear my browser to make sure that nobody's gonna find out that I'm looking at the orange door? Or how do I use the quick exit button in the app so that if somebody walks into the room and I don't want them to see me using the orange door app, I can hit the button and it's going to take me right to a Google landing page. And this is a great example of understanding a barrier to using these services. In this case, the barrier being the stigma associated with seeking out support. And that's going to drive much greater adoption of the actual services that they're trying to deliver to ultimately, ultimately improve the lives of their constituency. It's really interesting, Dan, because I think one of the things that we see in the human and social services space is really that that notion of stigma in that customers won't always want to approach organizations even if they need help because there's a certain stigma associated with that. So I think I think even to your point earlier about like, you know, the, the term customer, customer is a newer term that I think many human and social services organizations probably aren't yet comfortable with. And it's really the contemporary uh, the contemporary approach that people are starting to take to start to shift their focus away from what they've done in the past to how to take a bit of a different approach, right? Like, I mean, you've you've worked in examples in like retail and, and industry in the private sector where they've been thinking about customers for a while, but now as this you know starts to trend into the human and social services space, it's really about attraction. How do you get the people to come into the right door, right? That, that's exactly it. You know, it's, it's funny, Mike, because if I think over the course of my career, the projects that I had previously done on the not-for-profit or the public sector side, in many ways, the client asked us not to use the word customer. They preferred constituent or user. But increasingly, we're pushing back on that. And not because it's wrong to say user or constituent, but because we want to help that organization think about the person on the other side of that service as a customer who they need to earn the right to support and serve. And it's one thing for a retailer to know that I want Mike Capus and Martin Joyce to keep coming back to my store and buying whatever I'm selling. But if I'm offering support for domestic violence, I want the end user to feel great about using my organization, about coming back to me over and over and over, which means effectively treating them as a customer because they have an alternative. In their case, the alternative isn't necessarily to go to another store. It's to not address the problems in their life that are leading them to be a victim and all of the attendant detriments that occurs to them. But HSS organizations need to make it easy for people to come to them and make it frankly compelling.
and and that's what it means to try to design your business around a customer. Yeah. One of the things that Martin and, and I are seeing kind of across our clients that we work with in the HSS space is really around this sort of people-centric, right? Human-centered design. And, you know, more and more organizations are talking about it, but I don't think that many organizations actually truly understand what it is or how to apply it. And so, I mean, every HSS organization will tell you that they always put their people people first, right? Because those are the people that they serve, their customers at the end of the day. But I guess, you know, from your experiences, how do people embrace that sort of human-centric design? And are there any tips or tricks or leading practices that we can point people to? I'm happy to speak to that. And, you know, it's it's so interesting because human-centric design as a discipline, on the surface, sounds very intuitive. Okay, we put the human at the center of things. And HSS organizations and the people who work there are generally more inclined to attempt to put the human at the center of their organization than you'd see from any private sector organizations. The challenge that we find is in the way that they define the human and the way they use that human perspective. So frequently when we're first talking to somebody who works at a, at a human and social services organization, a lot of what they have thought to be human sector design is based on the biases of the people who work there, right? Uh, and so they'll design based on how they would want to receive a service. One of the first things that we do when we're going through a human-centric design program with an organization is actually push them to say, put aside your personal biases and let's actually define who the personas are of the individuals who are likely to walk through your door. What do they care about? What are their decision drivers? What are their triggers? What are the behaviors that are going to make them more or less inclined to use your service. And we teach them how to wear that hat as opposed to their own personal perception of that hat. Uh, and the other thing that we see as being a really critical tip and trick as organizations are taking the human sector design approaches, the notion of putting that persona at the center of the design can't be superficial and it can't be for show. It needs to be an ongoing process where the person that we're designing for is in the room with us, that we are iterating with them and that we are refining our offering based on the feedback that we're getting from them, almost regardless of whether the folks who actually work at the organization agree with that or not. And that can be a very hard thing for a client to overcome. Uh, and so we, we spend a lot of time on those two levers, putting yourself in someone else's shoes and then having those shoes actually in the room so that we're designing on their behalf in a constant and iterative manner. And I guess the third piece that I would add to that is human-centric design has to be considered dynamically. The perspectives of the people who you're serving today are going to change over time. Nobody exists in a vacuum. And so we work with organizations to help to constantly refine who that human is that they're designing around and how their needs are evolving so that they can stay out in front of them and continue to be effective service providers. And and Dan, like when you're working with organizations, be they public sector or not-for-profit or private, and you're trying to get them to think about those three issues, um, what what sort of advice would you provide, you know, a, a, a human and social services organization when they tr when they go down this path, when they really want to put themselves into their 
client's shoes. They really want to put aside uh, their own views of how it should work and get their direct feedback. I think that's the important part here. The direct feedback of their clients is critical to this. Like what, what sort of advice would you provide them when they're going down this path? So I actually think, Martin, you hit the nail on the head uh, in terms of uh, thinking about uh, that, that lived experience of their end consumer. And, and my yeah. advice is always take the time and do the research, right? Bring the people in, have focus groups, have interviews, do ethnographies. It is so valuable. And I've had so many experiences where clients have these aha moments when they're sitting in a room and a person who they presumed would have a certain perspective actually has the direct opposite perspectives. And it fundamentally changes the way that the folks at the HSS organization think about how they should operate their business. If you're not constantly bringing those folks in and asking them the questions and observing the way they interact with what you're offering, you're always going to revert back to your own personal unconscious biases on how the service should be delivered. So do the research and then do it again and continue to do it over and over and never get comfortable with the view that you've got it nailed from a human-centric perspective because humans are constantly changing and their needs are constantly evolving. That's an interesting one, Dan, particularly when we talk about um, constant feedback and constant design, you know, ongoing, refine, test, refine, test, deliver, you know, those sort of concepts. What, one of the things that we have seen, and I think um, governments have started to realise this, is sometimes their program guidelines are very rigid, you know, and only allow certain things to occur or certain ways. And what we have found over the last you know, five, ten years in various jurisdictions is that governments have said, well, actually, that's not the way we want to do it anymore. We want the outcome. You service delivery agency, whoever you are, you come up with the best way just to meet that outcome. And so we have seen this subtle shift towards being able to, you know, be more flexible and innovative and respond to the the, the client need in a much better way. I liked, I also like Dan's comment about just the engaging yeah. of as many different stakeholders and yeah. customer groups as you possibly can. Because I think often what ends up happening is that organizations and governments design programs and services for people in the social sector based on what they think is best or what they think they know right yeah. and in few instances is that corroborated with actual stories or you know understanding it from the persona perspective and i, I know in some of the work that we've done with our clients like there's been few instances in the most recent where we've been able to apply you know thinking about the customer experience and the customer journey a bit differently. And and I know that that's kind of, that's something that not a lot of organizations have yet taken advantage of. And Dan, I was wondering maybe if you could just share with the audience, like what is customer journey mapping? How, and how can that be used to really design a better delivery system or a program and service for, for vulnerable people or people at risk? Mike, you're speaking to my passions. I'm happy to talk about customer journey mapping. Uh, and I think there are some things that are well understood about journey mapping, and then there are some common misconceptions about how journey mapping can be used. So at its core, customer journey mapping is two things. The first is what most people think of it as, identifying all the different touch points and interactions 
that an organization has with its customer throughout. So if Mike Capus is, you know, you know, looking for whatever social service that we want to get, starting from the moment where Mike has decided that he needs this support, all the way through the end delivery and end outcomes of that, how is Mike engaging with the organization and everything around it? How does he find the organization? What is the first point of outreach? What are the initial conversations? Are they via email? Are they via phone? When is he going in person? So the simple basic block mapping. The nuance around customer journey mapping is once we've built that standard path and all the interactions, we can evaluate those interactions from the lens of multiple different personas. So Mike might love certain elements of a journey and hate other portions of it. Dan Resnick might love the part that Mike hates and hate the part that Mike loves. And if we start to look at that journey from the lens of each of our different personas, you can really figure out what the moments of truth are that most of your end customers truly care about and focus on designing for those. And conversely, understand the parts of the journey that frankly, most people generally are neutral on, that they're not overly fussed about. And so in a world of scarce resources and particularly in the public sector, you know where you need to invest your dollars and time and where you don't need to invest your dollars and time to serve the broadest range of customers that your organization cares the most about. And so when I talk about aha moments, right? The first is when you're actually in the room, seeing how a group of people are gonna react to what you do. The second is when you then start to plot those sentiments against your customer journey map and really see where there are spikes and where people are mostly ambivalent about elements of your journey. And you should be okay about that ambivalence because neutral is fine in those contexts. That's really interesting. Martin, I know I know in a few podcasts back, um, we talked to a, one organization that had sort of shifted during the pandemic in terms of school um, school lunches, right? Yeah. And, and supporting people. And even like, you know, thinking about the journey from shifting from in-person to digital, something like that actually would be very helpful for some, for an organization sort of considering that kind of shift, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, I think the other, well, there's two actual important things here. And Mark, I've got a question for you, which I'll just come back to in a second. But this, this notion of looking at a client journey or a customer journey uh, and shifting program delivery or service delivery, you know, depending on what people need or uh, want and how they want it. We also have to be mindful that the organisation will also have to change itself, which is also quite uh, a difficult um, issue to grapple with, right? You know, it's the old change management sort of notion that, um, you know, some some will come along some won't come along and then there'll be the group in the middle that you have to try and convince that this is the right way. And and Dan, from your perspective, once you start getting into these discussions about, you know, how 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 is a, a customer's journey impacted? Is it good or bad? What parts are good or bad? How do we fix it or change it? Do, do you also have to bring the organisation and, um, you know, its employees along for that ride as well? I mean, if we don't, then I can tell you that in every time, the uh, journey towards customer centricity will fail. And in fact, 
you know, frequently what we see when we're working with our clients is that just by bringing a large group of people from all walks of the business, both customer facing, but also non-customer facing through the process, starts to drive immediate change and immediate results. And I had many experiences in my career where we arrive at a vision on what we want our end state customer experience to be. And while it then takes months or even years to roll that out, depending on the level of investments that are required and, and all the other factors that go into that, just by having been part of the conversation around what it means for us to be more customer and more human centric, you start to see the organization shifting their behaviors and building accountability in every single person for that customer experience. Yeah. And not just assuming that it's the person on the phone or behind the desk or behind the chatbot who owns that. So that change management piece is key. Uh, and my advice to clients whenever we're talking to them about customer experience design is let's run the whole village through the program, even if it takes a little longer and it's a little bit cumbersome you're going to see huge and immediate value out of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an important consideration, particularly in the human and social services sector. Mike, just I know we're running um, up against time here, but there was a question that I did have for you. I'm, I'm changing this a little bit, the interviewer asking a question of the other interviewer. Um, this notion of lived experience, I think, um, ha has always been important, but I, but it's gained a lot of traction and momentum over recent times. You know, we, we when I was working in Australia in the in the housing space, had resident advisory groups that we would take things to. We would get their input. Uh, we would um, think about, you know, how they could engage with our board. Uh, you know, those sort of elements. We, we were thinking about board members with lived experience in homelessness and affordable housing. Um, have you seen from your perspective a shift here in Canada over the years as well with organisations wanting or requiring uh, more people involved in the organisation with lived experience of whatever the issue is or the service that they're delivering? Yeah, I would say I would say in any sort of initiative that we take on alongside government or an HSS organisation, yeah. there's a baseline expectation that we are engaging with the the cohort or the population that's being dealt with, yes, either through the project work or as part of, you know, a part of an existing body that they had. You know, for one, actually for one recent project that we did around the child welfare space, we actually helped a province to establish a youth round table, which is made up of, of youth who both have been in care, who have left care, who are currently in care. And there's about 30 of them who essentially come together once a month and talk through some of the topics that the province directs its way, really to help inform some of the transformation work that's happening around foster care, around adoptions, around prevention early intervention. Yeah. Because if you don't have that first voice, you're kind of, you know, guessing in the dark in some respects in terms of we think this is going to have the most impact for, for children and youth. But what do you guys think? Because their perspective might be slightly different or a slightly yeah. different aspect of it that hasn't been considered before. And I think that's where we're seeing more first voice being more important for organizations and for governments. Yeah, for sure. We're, we're also um, seeing it more and more with boards, uh, including people on, you know, on their board or their committees with, with yeah. the lived experience. And, and I think that's quite important. And, 
and and it, it has been important over the years, but I think it's sort of becoming, you know, coming to the fore even more now, particularly with the pandemic having had different impacts on different groups within our communities. Exactly. Um, I just want to say thank you to Dan. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, thanks for your advice uh, and your comments. Very much appreciated. I'm sure our listeners uh, will get some value from those. And if anybody wants to talk any more about customer and human-centered design and customer journeys, please feel free to reach out uh, reach out to Dan Resnick uh, here at KPMG. Michael, as always, good to have you aboard. Um, thanks so much. We'll be doing another one very soon. Uh, we're going to do a bit of advertising now. We're going to do one um, with a, a colleague around technology uh, in the human and social services space, Lydia Lee, uh, and that will be upcoming quite soon as well. Um, so for everybody out there, hopefully you stay safe and healthy and have a great summer, and um, you shall hear us all soon. Thanks.